please turn in your New Testaments now to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. As we continue in our series through 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. And this is the very word of God. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve that living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, there, there seem to be some things that improve in our Christian life the, the longer we walk with the Lord. And that should be the case. You know, there should be growth as the Spirit of God is, is giving growth. But I, I think it bears noting this morning, particularly because of this text, that there are some things that new Christians just kind of get that if we're not careful sometimes as we grow in the Lord we might lose something important along the way you know new Christians get the dynamic of forgiveness and grace you know why because they're still just that close, just that close, days from, weeks from, months from, maybe a year from, the cool headwaters of the forgiveness they received. I mean, they're just like right down the street from ground zero where they were made new. They don't have any qualms that they were somehow good. They got the gospel. They understood that they needed Jesus. They put their trust in Christ. They were forgiven. It's an amazing thing to watch someone under the influence of the Holy Spirit begin to see God's holiness, grasp their sin before God, and then see the cross for what it is. See the grace of God. See what God's done. And because God is awakening them and, and giving them new life, they, they reach out and grab it. And it's just like the best thing. Um, you know, a new, a new Christian tends to say, this this. This is what I've been dying for my whole life. And then they say stuff like this. Why would I not want to serve Christ? You know, new Christians, you'll say to a new Christian, you'll say, hey, look, why don't we start reading the book of Romans together? A new Christian will call you back and, and, and like the next day and said, okay, I read Romans. What else you want me to read? And we're like, whoa, no, 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 you don't, you don't read Romans like that. You know, and, and, and a new Christian says there's only 25 pages or something. You tell me I can't read 25 pages a night? Well, they don't have the ability to, to plummet the depths of Romans, you see. They're just eager to read Romans. And they, and they read it out of this, this heart of discovery, this, this heart of love. New Christians more naturally sometimes have this thought. Hey, why aren't we reaching out to other people with this? This is incredible. This, this is life itself. You know, an up, a, a, a new, new Christian will just up and say one day, hey, by the way, I, 
uh, I told my coworker about Jesus. And you say, you did? I sure did. Um, I've actually heard this from a new believer. Uh, they'll say something like this. They'll say, you know, I was, I was talking to my friend about Jesus because they're very close to that event of what happened to them through Jesus. I was talking to my friend about Jesus and I just told my friend that he couldn't get out of the car until he received Christ. And we're like, no, that is not the way you do this. And then secretly, I hope we say, I wish I was more like that. I remember the first time I ever shared the gospel, I, uh, I was talked into going down on one of those beach projects with Campus Crusade in da- on Daytona Beach. And, you know, people from all over the country were down there doing spring break. It was wild. This was my first spring break on the right side of, the, on the right side of this equation. So it was really interesting watching all this with very clear understanding and, and observation ability. And uh, so, you know, the, I was in this little team of people that went out on the beach, and, and I was a brand-new Christian, and I was raised in an elegant, liberal Presbyterian church where you didn't talk about religion. So I told them, I, I'll go out there with you on the beach, but I'm not talking. They said, okay. So, you know, about three days in, every day we'd be on the beach, and these people I was, I was with, they'd come up and they'd ask a question about God or, you know, do some kind of a survey about God and kind of move into a conversation uh, toward the gospel, and it was uh, the last night, and I guess they were determined that I was going to say something. So it was the last night, and we were kind of down near this boardwalk area. It's kind of shady, some of the stuff going on, and there was this guy, I don't remember his name, I'm calling Bill from, you know, Lord only knows where, uh, north of the Mason-Dixon line, down there in spring break, half out of his mind, and we started talking to Bill. And all of a sudden, this, this guy I'm with says, uh, Joseph's going to tell you about the true meaning of life. Like, that is just some kind of natural segue. <laughs> and there I was. Well, I started talking about Christ, and I started talking about the gospel. And, uh, and, and let me tell you something. Uh, Bill didn't want to learn about the true meaning of life. He was about three six-packs full of liquid meaning at this time. And, uh, and Bill got really irritated with me while I kept pressing. Because I was a new Christian. That's what you do, right? You just press. Well, the problem was is I got irritated with Bill for not listening to me. And I almost got in my first and only fight as a new believer and, a, and as a Christian. Folks, that's not the way to do it. But there, there's something underneath what I'm saying that needs to be paid attention to. You understand this? There's something about the experience of grace and and the proximity to it that can be very powerful. And there's nothing that says we have to lose that wonder and that sheer belief in the converting power of God through his grace through the gospel, right? New Christians need more seasoned Christians. They need the... The church, they, they need to learn the knowledge of God. They need to learn the scriptures. They need to learn, when I say theology, I just mean all that is true about God from the scriptures. They need to understand who we are in this world, what this world is like, what God is calling us. All of these things, they need to learn 
But seasoned Christians often can need new Christians to take them back to the epicenter of this explosion of grace in our lives. Whether it was in vacation Bible school when you were 10, or whether it was in the Sigma Alpha Epsilon house at Auburn University when you were 19. Doesn't matter when it happens, you understood your need for God. You knew that you were forgiven. You knew that you had a new life in Jesus. It's the most powerful thing a human being can ever experience. It's nothing less than a resurrection, right? I mean, it's what we believe about the gospel, about historic Christianity. And that's kind of what we have before us in the text this morning, an amazing testimony about a group of new believers who were formed through the preaching of the Apostle Paul in that great city of Thessalonica, that great ancient city, formed through God's use of his preaching. All of them are new. Some of them have been Jews. They understand some of the scriptures. Most of them, we learn, are coming out of pagan idolatry. And, and what we see is that this group of people are filled with a kind of joyful zeal for Christ and simply will not be stopped from being used by God to, exp- to spread his kingdom. And this message of grace and, and the number of people that are coming under the influence of Jesus Christ rather than pagan idols. The scriptures tell us right here uh, in, in, in Acts uh, chapter 17, but also here in Acts it says that he only preached, Paul only preached three weeks. You know, you read all this going on here and you're like, whoa. Now he preached three weeks. We don't know how long he stayed. It didn't, doesn't necessarily say. Maybe he stayed a little bit longer. We don't know. We know he was run out of town, right? He was run out of town. The, the, some of the new believers were beaten. Uh, Jason, one of the new, new, newly minted leaders, was treated terribly by the authorities. Paul was run out of town, went to the, the, the city of Berea, and then on to Athens. So we know these people hadn't been Christians that long. Uh, we read in verses 7 and 8 of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that Christ was just radiating out of these people in Thessalonica. And the city was kind of in an uproar because of Jesus. We'll get to that more specifically in a minute. And, and we read in, 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 cha- in verse 8 that, that not only are they radiating the gospel in Thessalonica, that this message through them, I'm talking about this new little group of believers, through them is penetrating the Roman provinces next to them. Achaia, where Corinth is located. That, the gospel is going to Corinth through them in large measure as well as other people. Thessalonica is a city of 200,000 people. It's, it's no small thing for the gospel to, to kind of explode in, in, a, in a significant way in a city of 200,000 people. Verses 6 through 8. And you became imitators of us, Paul said, and the Lord, for you received the word from us with, in much affliction, with joy, you see it, in the Holy Spirit. And so you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, not only... 
for that the word has sounded forth to you in Macedonia, but also Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere. This is an incredible group of people, new in the Lord. And, and their spiritual dynamic, if you will, is kind of summarized in our text. It's kind of summarized in verses 9 and 10. Um, and, it, and it makes things very plain. And, and basically it's, it's three things that I call, the I'm calling today at least, the, the three verbs of the Thessalonians. Turn, serve, and wait. It's right out of the text. Turn serve and wait and may God help us wherever we are in our pilgrimage with Jesus and however dated long or short that pilgrimage has been to learn from some dynamic Holy Spirit filled joyful grace captured Christians who have incredible zeal and faith turn verse 9 for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, the living and true God. Turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, you know what's interesting about this? If you look at the Greek language and the word turn, usually what you run into is a word, the word metanoia. It's the word that we get for, we have for repentance. Repentance means to turn. That's not this word. Metanoia, you've probably preached this before, kind of has to do with doing a U-turn. It's literally turning away from something, then towards something else. This is a different word than that. This is epistrepho, epistrepho. This word does not emphasize what you're turning away from. It emphasizes what you are turning toward. It means, quote, to direct attention toward. It means, listen to these words, to trust toward something. To literally move to something better. Something that you anticipate is better. So in moving toward something better, you are moving away from something else. And in metanoia, you're moving away from something to be able to move to something better. And this is is a wonderful word because the Holy Spirit helped them see the gospel to be able to turn to Christ and the living God. That's what's emphasized here. You know, we came with the word, you received it as the word of God, You had joy in the Holy Spirit. You turned to God away from idols. And and because that word is so strong in moving toward as opposed to moving away from, that's why Paul modifies the word or adds the words from idols. So you will know what it's being turned away from. You turned from idols, trusting toward the living and true God. Now, I'm going to tell you, we'll get into some things about idols in a moment. But if we could just go back into the ancient world and specifically Thessalonica for a minute, if you walked out, you know, it's a port city, 200,000 people, very bustling, very steeped in, in idols and, and filled with temples to idols with lots of demands for worship and adherence. 
But if you walked out on the port and you looked up the coast and it was a clear day, you know what you could see with your own eyes from Thessalonica? You could see Mount Olympus. You know what Mount Olympus is? Mount Olympus is where the 12 major gods of the Greeks and their Roman counterparts kind of were from. This is a big deal to be able to see Mount Olympus, have idolatry, worship of these little G gods reinforced every day by the geography, live in a culture that is totally based on those gods and what it means to worship those gods. And they turned away from those gods. And they turned to the living God. Now, please do not assume this is just like you meet somebody on campus and you say you ought to receive Jesus and they they receive Jesus into their life and everything's happy or something like that. This is not the way it is, folks. This is kind of like sharing the gospel with, with a Muslim and saying... You've got to turn away. I'm talking about in the Middle East, maybe in Saudi Arabia. And for you to come to Christ and turn toward Christ means that you're going to have to turn out of and away from everything, basically, that is familiar to you, everything that has to do with your family in terms of religion, everything that has to do with that culture in terms of religion. It's going to hit you hard. If you're in Saudi Arabia and you turn from idols of the not true God named Allah to Yahweh God through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, it's not like, well, we have idols, they have idols. We, came, we, we, receive, we, we share the gospel, they share the gospel. No. I mean, sometimes people get punished for coming to Jesus now too. I get that, but not like this. Not in these United States. The gospel exploded grace into their hearts through Paul's preaching, through the Holy Spirit, awakening them to the reality of who God actually is, the living God, the the only true God, what God had done for them, giving up the slavery, giving up the tyranny, giving up this performance aspect of idols and never being able to have satisfaction and suddenly God has done it. He's done it through Jesus. It is finished and it is for you and you can have it and you can have him forever. That's an amazing thing. That's the dynamic here. They turned. Same for us. You know, we don't have Grecian temples everywhere or Roman temples everywhere, but we have got our idols, every one of us, And our idols are very much like their idols. They are based on our deepest longings and our fears. You do understand those Greek gods, they were like superhumans. They are created by people. They really are a creation of people. Um, They weren't just worshiping, you know, Aphrodite or Diana is her, the goddess of love. They're 
desperately longing for love. They're trying to get love through Aphrodite. You understand? They're not just worshiping Poseidon, let's say. They don't want a tsunami to hit their town. They don't want the God of the sea to get mad. You know, I'm just kind of throwing some examples out there. You understand the deepest longings and fears. That's what idolatry is all about. I went to India, the land of six million gods. You create your own gods for your family, and it's all based on your deepest longings and fears. Just like me, just like you. There are things we want so bad in our life for whatever reason that we can taste it. And we will have it. And we are terrified not to get it. Or that person or that thing. There are things that we functionally want more than God. Shall we say at times way more than God? Yes. And deep down, we like the people in pagan Thessalonica working the same angles through their gods. We imagine that these things will make our lives what they should be in the rubric of money, sex, and power that's given to us in the Bible. We could list all kinds of idols under that rubric of money, sex, and power that we just have to have to be okay could be a job, it could be certain things, it could be status symbols, it could be a person's affection, it could be just being liked, it could be feeling like a winner because your football team's winning. <laughs> Look, all these things aren't wrong in and of themselves. You know, St. Augustine had this wonderful concept of, of misplaced love. That everybody understands there's a hierarchy of how important the loves in our lives are. One of the great things about Augustine is Augustine basically said, you tell me, you show me what you love, and I'll tell you who you are. I mean, you, don't, you take God out of the equation for a minute, and you could say, you know, if you, if you just love your job and give all your energy, all your time, all your passion, all your creativity, your job rather than your family, you can say all day long that your family's more important and that love's up here and the job's down here, but what's going to happen is you're going to lose your family. You know why? Because that's a misplaced love. We don't have to have God in the equation to understand this concept. Well, let me tell you something about idols, any idol and misplaced loves. There is nothing able to bear the demands, the weight, the, the longings that we have as human beings that can deliver except for the one who created us and has loved us forever in his son Jesus. There's nothing. We can work the angles all day long. And our idols are no different, finally, than their idols in Thessalonica. Here's the thing. You can never just say no to your idols. The just say no campaign won't work with idols because it just won't get you to a changed heart. Never turn away from your idols, my idols on your own because our hearts are like that. Our hearts are idolatrous. We are sinners John Calvin famously said that the human heart itself is like an idol-making factory. Don't you think that's true? You know, I was thinking through my idols 
And I'm sure I didn't even get half of them. But it was not a happy thing building my list, just kind of thinking through this and, and how I fail and, and how I cannot do this. You see, that's why it's not turn from toward. That's why it's turn toward the gospel, the power of God, the love of God, so that you can leave the non-gods. You can't do it on your own and just kind of layer God in there. You, we have to turn to God. That's a great use of a different verb. It's toward something to be able to get away from something. One of my favorite verses about repentance is Acts 3.19. And it does use the word metanoia, the other word. Repent, therefore, and turn to God that your sins might be wiped out and times of refreshment might come from the Lord. Repent, therefore, and turn to God that your sins might be wiped out and times of refreshment might come from the Lord. What do we see here? Metanoia has to do with what you're turning away from. And that's why Paul used the modifier not to explain what you're turning away from, but what you're turning to. And when it comes to turning from Something to God. I want, you to, I want you to hear what a bad theology of repentance looks like. We're taught this and we practice this. Basically, we imagine God is kind of like this when we see him. He's like, uh-huh. Yeah, I heard that confession. But you know what? I'll tell you what, Joseph. I'm just going to wait about a month to see if this is real. And after a month, if you've been a good boy or you've done what you said, then I will call it repentance because you will have turned. That's ridiculous. Why do we need Jesus? Why do we need God Almighty at all in that formula? Return, therefore, and turn to God. We confess our sins. We turn to God. We are embraced by God. We are empowered by God so that... Our sins are wiped out and times of refreshment might come from who? The Lord. You see, this is God's grace. This is the God who loves us. This is the God who wants us to turn, will empower us to turn. This is exciting, folks. We see this in the conversion of the Thessalonians in an inculcated culture that it's very hard to turn away from idols and they did it because of the gospel, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Y'all, that's the dynamic. We must turn as Christians. And that frees us up to love because we're not busy chasing all the time. We don't live our lives in utter insecurity and self-judgment, whether that's too good or not good enough. And we have this thing, we have space for this thing called love that comes from God and the ability not only to grasp it and dwell in it, but to give it while we rest our souls in God through Jesus Christ. So the first is turn, and that's a good segue toward the second verb, which is serve. What does it actually look like to live a life that's been wiped clean and abundantly satisfied by the grace of God? Where does that go? It's a good question. The scriptures answer it. It goes toward love. You know, everything in the law is really about love. It goes toward love. It goes toward serving God and serving other people. Galatians 5.13 is such a, a wonderful passage. 
right here in the middle of a, of a high decibel confrontation about what grace is and non-grace is by the Apostle Paul. That is the book of Galatians. Kind of like Romans, just amped up in the volume and almost anger <laughs> about non-grace and buying into it. But Paul says in Galatians 13, he's been talking about the freedom of the gospel and how people are cutting in. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Isn't that wonderful? That is freedom from this treadmill of idolatry and this fear of not getting what you're longing for. This all of this stuff that just keeps us running, keeps us running, keeps us running. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom to serve the flesh. Rather, through love, serve one another. Did you catch that? Paul just defined what freedom from idolatry in the gospel is for. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity just to serve the flesh. Rather, let your freedom roll forward into love for God. There is pure joy in the freedom the gospel brings that leads to the service that the gospel moves us into. This pure joy, this resting before God, this knowing who we are for the first time before a holy God, this being loved leads us to love. And that's what's happening with these new Christians in Thessalonica. They had turned from idols to serve the living God and their freedom is becoming ministry. And it's amazing. And you know, people are taking notice of this, we learn in the text. There are lots of people in Thessalonica saying, I would like to know what has happened in your life and in y'all's lives together and this city was just just had this this going on you know in in your life and my life in the context of the church and learning how to live together and love together you know why some people don't care for the church really deeply it's it's not just that it's inconvenience it's that you'd have to like share the yucky lives and struggles of other people it's like you kind of have to be a part of a family you know, like you don't just run away from your family. Well, we are the family. And, and not everybody wants to see grace played out in the midst of a family. Not everybody wants to learn how to forgive. Not everybody wants to learn how to love and, and actually apply that to people and, and, and get past things and move closer. You know, this is, this is the church, right? But I will tell you that just living Christianly, in the church, in your neighborhood, showing grace, showing love, helping people understand all of this over time, that will bring change. That is what every believer is to be doing, just living out the gospel and loving the God of grace wherever we are at the intersections of life and culture. And... Um, and, it, and it's interesting because in, in Thessalonica, they had something else. And you wonder, how in the world did, did this city kind of get turned on fire by the gospel with such a small group of people so fast? You want to hear the answer? It's something that we hadn't experienced. It's called persecution. 
And when they started beating up on some of them and they loved instead of retribution, and when there was this mob and, and when uh, the, the Jewish people, a group of Jewish people paid thugs to, to create violence and all, and the Christians responded with grace and, and love, it was that opportunity of pressure that basically was the red light and the camera on this new group of people. And that's why people said, wow, where's that come from? Wouldn't it be great to live into this same dynamic, to turn to the God of grace, away from our demanding, never satisfying idols, and have room in our lives for love, and want to give it in his name? Would that make a difference at the intersections of life and culture in the Jackson area? Would that make a difference in your family and my family? Would that make a difference in the midst of the body of Christ? My friend Ligon Duncan told a story one time about how um, uh, his friend and, and my acquaintance, Mark Dever, he had a conversation uh, in, I guess, after some kind of a speaking thing. There were pastors in to learn some things, I guess. And, and so this guy was from a small town of only 4,000 people. So think of a really small, think of Pickens, Mississippi or something like that. I don't know how, that's about what I think of, something like that. You got it in your head? Well, he's a Baptist minister and he told Mark Dever that that year over 200 people had been baptized in his church. And what he meant by that is that they were converted and baptized as believers. And so I think Mark Dever had a great response that would line up well with 1 Thessalonians 1. He said, tell me what happened in the town. And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, wait, you, you told me there's 4,000 people in your whole town, right? Right. There's no way that 200 people turned on for Christ at one time among 4,000 people can't make a difference, which leads us to ask, what are we teaching those 200 people? It leads us to ask questions about ourselves. Is there something of foundational, fundamental identity that maybe is getting lost somewhere? Is there something of the joy of the headwaters of grace and the power of God to transform a life? Is there turning? Is there love? Look, I'm not telling you that to make you feel bad about yourself or, or our church or something like that. I'm, I'm telling you that looking right here at 1 Thessalonians 1 so you and I can see the possibilities. You understand? We do love God. We do yearn for people to know Him. So the power of the gospel is made visible to others, turning away from idols to the gospel, serving the living and true God. And then the third verb, turn, serve, wait. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And I want you to know, in the early church, and I'm not trying to get on to people, please don't interpret what I'm going to say 
in terms of any movies or best-selling books, okay? The, the second coming was not a complex riddle to be solved in the early church. The second coming was a primary source of encouragement about what could be next. The second coming of Christ assured those going through persecution that Jesus was still in control. He was the Son of God sent from heaven who was raised, who now sits at the right hand, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and He's coming back. We've read the end of this book. We know how it ends, and He wins. We win with Him. The wrath to come is coming and two things we need to consider. Number one is we really don't want people to go under that wrath. And we have just a short time called our lives to be able to show and tell the gospel to people because the wrath of God is coming. I can't, I can't make any, say anything other than what the Bible just says here. Secondly is if you are a believer, you do not need to fear the wrath of God. You need to say, come Lord Jesus, in the sense that there will be victory and final victory no matter what you're going through. And that even includes the temptations and the struggles we have. Are y'all looking forward to that in heaven? Like no temptation, no struggle with self? I mean, streets of gold or asphalt, no struggle with self. I'm like picking no struggle with self over gold streets every time. Jesus wins. We win. And when they could have been terrified, Paul taught them to anticipate God's grace now in their lives and his glory later. And they had a sense that it could happen at any moment. You know why? Because it could happen at any moment. It's the way it is. He was showing them that they might be facing the wrath of persecutors now, but they will be saved from the greater wrath to come. And Paul wanted to see his jailers and his persecutors escape that wrath as well. This is one of the things that just blew people away about Christians. They love their enemies. It's amazing. So moving to the table, it seems that new Christians can sometimes teach us a lot if we'll let them. So how about this? Why don't we ask God to help us get simple again? Ask Him to work in our lives, set us free through turning from to Jesus again and again to have room in our lives for love, to be able to love in our church, in our family, in our world while we wait with great anticipation. I read these words as we go to the table because Jesus also gave a future sense when he gave communion. He said, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on. When he gave them that first communion. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. We wait with great anticipation and serve as we turn to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the simplicity of these three verbs summarizing these new believers in Thessalonica. God, would you, would you work these three verbs in a more 
potent way into our lives. We also love you, and, and yet we are duped into idols. Lord, we, we choose idols. Would, would you just help us to see that they will never deliver? Would you help us to move toward you, Jesus, and the life that is truly life and away from these non-gods and disappointers and emptiness creators in our lives. And Lord, help us to love. Thank you that we're about to celebrate the supper of your unconditional and eternal love. In Jesus' name, amen.